What's up? I'm Amanda Costco, and you're listening to the Electric Runway Podcast, a podcast exploring the intersection of fashion and technology. You're quite good at that, dodging all my questions. Wrap your arms around my neck. Welcome back. In today's episode, we're bringing you to Pennsylvania for Pittsburgh Fashion Week. When you think of Pittsburgh, you might not necessarily think of fashion. The place is much more known as a university city or steel town, which is why you may be surprised to know that in September, instead of slogging it to New York or Paris, I was in the Iron City for Pittsburgh Fashion Week. Pittsburgh Fashion Week was organized by Style 412, a not-for-profit on a mission to connect and develop the fashion industry in Pittsburgh in collaboration with the Pittsburgh Downtown Community Partnership. Together, they aim to turn the city's attention towards fashion. To first provide some context, you'll hear from Sarah Longo of Style 412. Second, we're speaking with Michael Anakin, the CEO of the McGee Women's Research Institute, one of the main sponsors of the Fashion Week. We'll learn more about the connection between women's health and fashion. Finally, we're speaking with Amanda Curtis from 19th Amendment. Although 19th Amendment is not based in Pittsburgh, the company was on the scene to share their software, which helps emerging and established designers connect to local American manufacturers. We'll learn how 19th Amendment worked with designers in Pittsburgh to make their runway shows shoppable to compete in a fashion ecosystem that seems to get faster every year. So we have three guests on today's show. It's all about Pittsburgh Fashion Week. It's a packed episode and it starts right now. So Sarah, you're with Style 412. Can you tell me exactly what is Style 412 and its mission? Sure. So Style 412 is a nonprofit organization here in Pittsburgh. We're looking to connect and build a platform of resources for fashion professionals here in Pittsburgh. So connecting students with professionals and then elevating the status of fashion in Pittsburgh. And along those lines, you threw Pittsburgh Fashion Week this week that was a little bit different than the fashion weeks that Pittsburgh has seen in past. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I love Pittsburgh. We're full of really smart people and really resilient people, but fashion has never been at the forefront of our industries here. So we wanted to embrace what Pittsburgh is already good at. So we have a great healthcare scene, we have a great tech scene, we have a really big startup scene. Fashion sort of hits all of those things within Pittsburgh, but it's never the front-facing industry. So what we tried to do was embrace what Pittsburgh is really good at, elevate all of those things, and we were very purposeful about our partnerships, like McGee, for example, huge healthcare industry here in Pittsburgh. and they helped support Fashion Week this year. And then the other piece was showing Pittsburgh what's possible. So those industries are sort of siloed here, and we really wanted to host this Future of Fashion panel and put a futuristic perspective on the runway show so that we could bring the community together, elevate ourselves further, elevate the fashion industry, and show everybody what's possible. So stay tuned for more out of Pittsburgh. Yeah, great, we're looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you. The spotlight makes me feel so good inside. That was Sarah Longo of Style 412 and one of the co-organizers of Pittsburgh Fashion Week. As Sarah mentioned, one of the things Pittsburgh is really good at 
is healthcare. Now, we've talked about the connections between fashion, technology, and healthcare on the podcast before, especially about the potential for wearable technology and smart fabrics, which is why we were really excited to visit the McGee Women's Research Institute to learn more about the research that's going on there focused on breast cancer and women's fertility. Here to share more is Michael Anakin, the CEO of McGee. So I'm here with Michael Anakin. Michael, when people think of a fashion event, they don't necessarily think about a research institute, but you've decided to support Pittsburgh Fashion Week, and I'd love to know why. Well, we're the largest research institute in the United States that's focused on women's health, and as such, we like to support all things that have to do with health and wellness for women and women empowerment. And some of our research directly correlates to diseases that are impacted by fashion. Breast cancer is a perfect example, cancer treatment in general. And so we thought this was an opportunity to gain some awareness in a market that is not typically thought about as research adjacent. But for us, we like to take a holistic approach to health and wellness for treating women. And, you know, we were talking about the idea that there's so much research that goes on here kind of behind closed doors, but there's that gap in reaching the community. And so the fashion event and, you know, coming on the podcast is an opportunity to get the messaging out there a little bit more, perhaps? Yes, definitely. I mean, one of the things we've done really well for 26 years was create science that inspired other scientists. What we haven't done as well was inspired the community to act on that science. And that's what we're trying to do now. Really, science is not our goal. It's our tool, and impact is our goal. So in order for us to create that impact, we've got to get out there in the community, understand the needs of the community, and then create solutions for those needs. And that's what this will help us do. Great, thank you so much. You're welcome. We both know you don't make no sense. When you go, I can make you stay. So we live for the That's my conversation with Michael Anakin, the CEO of the McGee Women's Research Institute. So my last guest on the podcast today, as I mentioned, is Amanda Curtis from 19th Amendment. Now that you have a little bit more context about the Fashion Week and about the support behind it, you can learn about one of the very interesting companies that I've been following for a while and had the opportunity to learn more about when I was in Pittsburgh. Here now is my conversation with Amanda Curtis of 19th Amendment. So Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who don't know, who are you and what is 19th Amendment? So my name is Amanda Curtis. I am the co-founder and CEO of 19th Amendment. And 19th Amendment is a platform that allows brands of all sizes to sell direct to consumer without having to hold inventory and then to facilitate on-demand manufacturing localized to the end consumer. I love the name. Where did the name come from? Thanks. So the 19th Amendment was a woman's right to vote. So it gave everyone a voice in the democratic process. And we really see our company as giving everyone a voice in the fashion industry. So we really want consumers to vote with their wallet on what is actually made instead of kind of being told what they should purchase and and what's available to them. Absolutely. So we met in Pittsburgh recently for their Fashion Week, and 19th Amendment was actually involved in a really interesting way. Can you talk about that? Sure. So at Pittsburgh Fashion Week, we connected with a few of the designers who were showing during their runway show, and we actually made their runway shoppable. 
Um, what we find in these fashion weeks is the designers work so hard to create these amazing collections. There's a lot of time, effort, and money that goes into it. And you have a captive audience, but there's no way to really engage them or get a return on your investment as a designer. So what we've done is created a way for designers to make their show shoppable by plugging them into our platform. So during Pittsburgh Fashion Week, three brands were able to power their runway shows and people who were either watching online through a live stream or video after the fact or in the audience could actually shop the looks as they went down the runway, which is really amazing, and then have those looks made just for them on demand in the U.S. And so how does this change the design process? Because, you know, the see now, buy now movement that we're seeing is difficult from a designer perspective because they have to have lots of inventory ready um, when they show. So how does 19th Amendment kind of enable the see now, buy now process and kind of ready designers for that demand? Yeah, so we see ourselves as almost like the see now, buy now 2.0 version where we took it from see now, buy now to see now, buy now, make now. And you're exactly right. So the problem with see now, buy now was that the buyers prior to the runway show to make it shoppable had to place orders and hold inventory on product, which is really, really risky and expensive. And it kind of hinders a lot of the creativity of the designer because not everything that goes down the runway is something that the buyer wants to put up and hold inventory on. So what we've done is allowed brands to digitize their designs in a way that everything can be shoppable, but it's not immediately available. It's available in a sense that in four weeks after you place your purchase, it's going to be manufactured for you and then you're going to receive it. So it's kind of the evolution of see now, buy now, but without the inventory aspect. Right, because the inventory, as you were mentioning, it's a huge risk. It's expensive. There's a lot of um, problems when it comes to that. When we were on the panel, or I was on the panel with your co-founder, Gemma, in Pittsburgh, somebody asked, a designer in the audience asked, you know, how is 19th Amendment going to help me compete with Zara? And I really like Gemma's answer. She basically said, well, we're not competing with Zara. This is actually a new model for doing things. Yeah, I mean, I think... The risk for all brands is how do you keep up with fast fashion? How do you protect your designs from being stolen and ripped off the runway? And Zara and other fast fashion companies have such a quick turnaround around six weeks to get things from concept to into store and sometimes shorter. So what we've enabled is a very kind of condensed um, fashion timeline where a brand can put things on the runway and have it immediately available for sales so they're not missing out on those sales and get it to the end consumer in four weeks, which is an incredibly fast timeline. So in that way, it's kind of going around the traditional fashion calendar and also protecting the brand from a lot of these knockoffs that happen six weeks, 10 weeks down the line after a runway show. Absolutely. And so... With this new model that we're seeing with kind of on-demand manufacturing, you're not only going around the traditional Fashion Week model, you're going around the traditional manufacturing model. So do your designers manufacture closer to home, do you find, or are they still outsourcing production overseas? 
Yeah, so designers, what we find is that they they really are into producing locally. It gives them more control over the process. They're, through our network, guaranteed a ethical and sustainable solution to manufacturing. And it's also produced locally to the end consumer, so you're cutting down on both shipping time and shipping cost and environmental impact. It's actually really interesting to see not only smaller brands request this, but much larger brands requesting a bit of reshoring and different options for their manufacturing solutions that they probably wouldn't have considered even five years ago. Yeah, and that was actually my next question leads into it really nicely. So is your goal to help only emerging designers or... Can 19th Amendment software help streamline and simplify the kind of messy side of fashion production for any size business? Yeah, I mean, our goal is absolutely to kind of redefine the fashion business model and to give brands of all sizes this innovative and smart solution through our software. We started with the independent smaller designers, um, mainly because they're more open and nimble to a new business model. And they're really great at giving us that early on feedback as we build out our software and our tool. So now we're at a point where we're speaking with and onboarding much larger brands because the process has already been proven, the software has already been built, and the larger brands are now looking for the same type of solution as they run into more issues with inventory and international trade and are just looking for a smarter way to go about this business model of fashion. So how do you protect your clients' data privacy? Because we know that the fashion industry is like very traditionally cards close to the chest. Do your clients worry about their designs being stolen kind of like off the platform or is that protected? So IP in the fashion industry, as I'm sure you know, is a really interesting topic. It's very hard to get IP for design. And there's definitely two sides to that argument, which I could definitely spend a whole podcast on myself. But we do have agreements with our manufacturers. So you're not going to see the same type of, I guess, copying of designs as you might worry about doing manufacturing overseas. In the U.S., it's a bit more controlled. And then I think the other safeguard we really have is that super quick timeline of getting that product made in in the consumer's closet as soon as the consumer sees it, either they're on the runway or online. So that's like our best protection. It's like, no, we can actually get it to the consumer faster and it's at a reasonable price. And it protects the brands a bit because the fast fashion um, companies who are, might be knocking those designs off are traditionally going to have to take longer just because they're doing things overseas and the design process takes a bit a bit longer. It at least gives them more of a fighting chance than if they were to go through the traditional model of waiting six months to get their inventory and then put it in stores and go through the traditional fashion calendar and in that time you just you just can't compete. Right. And so from your perspective, you're kind of sitting in between the manufacturers and the designers. What else do you think is changing about manufacturing? I think the, I mean, the model on both ends is definitely changing. I think that manufacturers are also looking for a better solution to their operations. They are starting to realize that the fashion calendar is no longer that lead times are very different in that traditional 
I guess, orders aren't quite the same as more and more brands focus on their direct-to-consumer business. Um, it's not the traditional wholesale order anymore that they're really seeing. So what we found is that by providing them technology and a way to manage these direct-to-consumer orders and on-demand manufacturing, they're actually really open to it. Because what was happening before our process was a lot of these manufacturers would hire, um, train, and then have you know peak volumes during and around fashion weeks, maybe three to four times a year, or around wholesale orders, and then there would be lulls in, in their production schedules, which meant that they had to fire the staff that they had hired and trained and spent all that time on, and then wait a few months and then repeat the process. So it was definitely not sustainable for them, and you know, retraining a workforce is really, really tough, and it means that you never quite get to the level that you need to. So what we provided is a constant flow of orders coming in year-round, so that the manufacturers can grow and maintain their operations. And that's super, super important to them. And it also means that they're willing to do these kind of smaller batch orders on a more consistent basis and give better pricing than they probably would five years ago. So by providing them a tool to work with this new kind of direct-to-consumer model, um, we're helping to grow and change their business in a really sustainable and meaningful way. It's really awesome work that you're doing. I'm so excited to have met you. I've been following the company for a little while now, and I had the chance to meet you and Gemma in Pittsburgh, as I mentioned. So two more questions for you before I let you go. What's next for 19th Amendment, and how can people follow you and stay in touch? Sure. So as we grow, we'll be working with larger brands and, of course, brands from all over the world. So we launch right now probably a new collection every single week. And we're really excited to use our software to start powering brands' own e-commerce sites. So beyond just 19thamendment.com or shop.19thamendment.com, brands can use the 19th Amendment Smart PLM to power their own websites and their own direct-to-consumer on-demand sales, which I'm super, super excited about. For anyone who's interested in learning more, you can visit 19thamendment.com. It is spelled out. And shop.19thamendment.com if you're a customer and just want to check out this kind of new wave of retail and support some really amazing designers and local manufacturers. It's a great way to find something different and unique and also shop for good. Absolutely. We're going to put up links on electricrunway.com so that our listeners can take a look. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Amanda. This was great and great meeting you as well. That was my conversation with Amanda Curtis, the CEO and co-founder of 19th Amendment. Thank you to Sarah and Michael for participating in this podcast. And of course, to Amanda for links and video accompanying this episode, we invite you to visit electricrunway.com and click on podcasts. That's where you'll also find all past and future episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. That's it for today's episode. Until next time, here's looking towards the future. So